Welcome to The Rock Church, a vibrant, enthusiastic, edgy church meeting in West Bridgeford, Nottingham. You can find out more about us by visiting the-rock.org.uk. We hope you were blessed by this message. So we're going to get our preacher up. We've got the wonderful Kathy Appleby coming to preach today. So Kathy is one of our senior leaders. She's an elder of the church. She's a, a pastor in training. This lady has got it all. <laughs> so, but she's actually been really poorly this week. She's been really struggling with a nasty chest, and the, the enemy's really tried to divert and stop. So Kathy, I'm just going to pray over you right now, as we did in production. That Lord, we thank you for this incredible woman of God. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you have put on her heart. And Father, I come against, in your mighty name, any cough any rattle that's going to disrupt your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Claire. I received that. I'm just going to undo the lid. I've got, you see, I've got buckets of water <laughs> just in case. All right. Okay, happy Pentecost, people. Woohoo! <laughs> okay, so there was a, a Baptist preacher and his wife. And they decided to get a new dog. But ever mindful of their congregation, they knew that the dog also had to be a Baptist. Okay, so they visited kennel after kennel, looking for this dog and explaining what they wanted. And eventually they found a kennel and this woman assured them that she'd got just the dog they wanted. So that evening the owner bought the the dog to meet the the pastor and his wife. and, And she said to the dog, she said, fetch the Bible. So the dog ran over to the bookcase, scrutinized the books, knocked the Bible out with his paw, great dexterity in his paws, leafed through. She said, find Psalm 23. So it's leafed through, found Psalm 23 and pointed to it. Pastor and his wife were amazed, obviously, so uh, they, they purchased the dog. Anyway, that evening, a few members of the congregation came round to meet the dog. The pastor and his wife began to show off commanding it to find various verses in the Bible, which it did with its dexterous pause. And then one of the men asked, asked them, does he do regular tricks? And he said, I don't know, I've not tried. So he pointed at the dog and he went, heel. And the dog jumped onto the chair, put his paw on the pastor's head and started to howl. <laughs> and the pastor looked at his wife in shock and said, oh no, he's a Pentecostal. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My first attempt at a joke behind the pulpit. We're completely normal. (laughs) I said no Pentecostal ever. Anyway, seriously, I don't know about you, but I'm really proud to be a Pentecostal. Yeah, it's an honour to be up here preaching on Pentecost Sunday for me, which, in case you didn't know, was when the church was birthed. So it's not just Pentecost Sunday, it's happy birthday to the church. So it's our birthday today, yeah. And it's also the day where we're able to demonstrate our Pentecostal distinctiveness, okay? So one of our statements of faith in this church is that we believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit as an endowment of the believer with power for service. That means power to witness and to do mission. And we believe that the essential biblical evidence of this is in the speaking of tongues, okay? Now, I'm very privileged to be studying at a Pentecostal Bible college, and uh, 
I'm on the receiving end of some outstanding biblical teaching, which has ignited a passion in me for the scriptures and particularly the Old Testament. And what I'm going to do today is to try to impart some of what I've learned and hopefully show you just how awesome God is in how intricate and precise the scriptures are and how the Old Testament signposts and prophesies the events of Pentecost Sunday. So, my prayer is that every one of us will leave here this morning filled with Pentecostal Holy Spirit fire, okay? Equipped and ready to go out as disciples of Jesus and bring about the revival that we believe we're on the cusp of seeing. Oh, we all look for that. Brilliant, so let's get started. So the title for my message today is The Power of One. Now, it's a bit content heavy, It's a different style to what you're used to from me, and I'm going to be jumping around the scriptures a bit, so bear with me, but they will come up on the screen, okay? So in order to get to the events that happened 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, it's important to get an understanding of what Pentecost is. So the word Pentecost basically means 50, and it comes from the Greek word Pentecostus, meaning 50th to the power of, five to the power of 10. And Pentecost was the the Jewish celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it occurred 50 days after the Passover, (coughs) excuse me, when the Israelites took the blood of the lamb, painted it over their doorposts, and um, were delivered from the death angel, the angel that passed over. And also they were delivered out of slavery from Egypt. The day of Pentecost in the New Testament happened 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, okay? So Pentecost in the Old Testament, the giving of the law on tablets of stone. In the New Testament, the giving of the Spirit on tablets of flesh, our hearts, okay? Already we start to see how wonderful God is in his planning of this, right? And incidentally, in the Old Testament, we read that there was a sound from heaven and a a violent shaking of the mountain, and 3,000 people died because they were worshipping other gods, golden calves. In the New Testament at Pentecost, we'll see there was a mighty sound, a rushing wind. We've already heard that. And ultimately, the Lord added 3,000 to those that were already saved. The law brings death. The Spirit brings life. Amen. It's perfect how God works all of this out. So what happened at Pentecost? So we've already heard it, but we're going to read it again. If you turn to Acts 2, this is a different version. We're going to read from verse 1 to 8 from the New King James Version. And it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled 
saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language which we were born? We'll come back to this passage, but I just want you to remember two words from it, and that is one accord, okay? Remember those two words. Say after me, one accord. Thank you. Okay. So before we come back to this passage, I want to take you now back into the Old Testament. Who knows that everything that happens in the New Testament is a fulfillment of that what was prophesied in the Old Testament? Yeah? So we're going to turn to one of the prophets. We're going to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Zephaniah was a prophet who was around approximately 650 years before Pentecost happened. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And his prophecies to the people of Judah talked of the judgment and wrath of God on the people, but also of a purifying God and a God of restoration for those who turned away from their sinful ways. So chapter 3, verse 9 says, it's there on the screen, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. For then. When it says this, it refers to when the Messiah comes. For then. When the Messiah comes, I will restore to the peoples. The Hebrew word for this is nations. So I will restore to the nations a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. There's those two words again. Now the other thing to notice here is he says a pure language. Not a language like every other worldly language that we know that has swear words, dirty words, immoral language in it. I believe he's talking of a language here that's been refined by fire. A heavenly language, because I guarantee when we get to heaven, there will be no swear words, there will be no immoral words, there will be no dirty words. But the important word to note here is restore. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a pure language. He said, I'm going to restore a pure language so that they can be in one accord to all peoples and nations. To restore something is to bring it back to its former glory. So if he's going to bring back a pure language, when did he take it away? Let's see. So let's go to Genesis chapter 11. And here we see the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel, by the way, means confuse, confusion. Does anybody know what language the people spoke before the Tower of Babel? Good guess, Ruth. But it wasn't Hebrew. Because the Jewish nation wasn't instigated until Genesis 12. With Abraham. The Bible actually indicates that they all spoke one language. So we read in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. 
But the Lord came to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So the people are one. Yeah, they're in unity. And because they're in unity, they have this one language. God sees that they could actually do what they're trying to do. In Acts 2, as we read, the disciples got a language that everyone could understand, and they were all in one accord. We saw in Zephaniah, he prophesied that in the day of the Messiah, I am going to restore the pure language. Let's just go back to the Tower of Babel for a minute. In verse um, 7, it says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us, capital U, go down. Let's just think who the us is. It's the same us as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make mankind in our own image. Remember God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's just notice here, the Holy Spirit is a part of this conversation. So at Babel, God confused their language. But on the day of Pentecost, we read that when the Spirit came down, they could all understand. Every one of them from all the nations could understand in their own language. At Babel, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. In Acts 2, we read that they came together. And in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, we read that they were all in one accord in one place. Just as they were all in accord and in one place in Genesis 11. This is incredible stuff, church. I think it deserves a round of applause. Come on. The genius of God. The genius of God. So we see here that Pentecost is not just the reversal of the giving of the law in the Old Testament because the law brings death and the spirit brings life. Pentecost is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Why? Because at the Tower of Babel, they were all in unity. They all spoke one language, but they weren't redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And their hearts were wicked. Their motives were wicked. They were building a city and a tower to emulate their own greatness and make themselves look good and not the greatness of God. So God says, I'm going to have to go down. I'm going to have to take the language away from them and scatter them. But then, but then, yeah, there's always a but then with God. After my son comes and dies on the cross for their sins and redeems them, I'll be able to come back and bring them back together and restore the pure language back to them. Cue Pentecost. Are we getting the significance of this? Yeah? Okay, so can we experience Pentecost? Yeah, Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, and we weren't there. And there's some level of thinking in the body of Christ that it was just a one-time event, that it was just for them. Let me tell you about a dream that I had right back at the start of my journey as a Christian. I was in a church. This was in a dream. It wasn't a Pentecostal church because I knew the people that were there. 
And I dreamt that I saw fire fall. I dreamt that I saw flames on top of people's heads. And from that moment on, I believed, I believed that I would see that happen one day. Yeah, I now realize it was probably God telling me that I was a closet Pentecostal and in the wrong church. But anyway, I still believe that we are going to see that. And maybe, just maybe, today is the day. Yeah, maybe. But going back to that line of thinking that, that none of us can experience it because we weren't there. I have a problem with that thinking. Because when we say Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago, let's change that. Pentecost was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. We know that Passover was fulfilled on the day that Jesus was crucified. We no longer have to sacrifice the blood of a lamb and paint it over our doorposts because the living lamb of God, Jesus, was sacrificed for our sins. So even though we weren't alive when Jesus was crucified and fulfilled Passover, we can still experience the fulfillment of Passover by receiving Jesus into our lives. So in the same way, it makes sense to me then that even though we weren't alive when the Holy Spirit fulfilled Pentecost, we can still receive the fulfillment of Pentecost by being filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? In Acts 1, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, <clears throat> he told his disciples what he required of them. And that was that they were to go into the world and tell everyone the good news, the good news about him. But before they did this, they were to wait and receive the power of the Holy Spirit to help them. Tells us in Acts 1, verse 4, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in J Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then, as we read already, we see the fulfillment of this promise from Jesus on the day of Pentecost. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And as a result of this supernatural experience, a large crowd gathered and Peter preached the gospel to them. And 3,000, over 3,000 were added to the church. And the book of Acts goes on to tell us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, thousands more became Christians and many churches were established. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing to note is that it's not the same thing as becoming a Christian. Yeah, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were already followers of Jesus. They'd left their homes to follow him. They'd confessed him as Christ and son of the living God. But until Pentecost, they were not filled with the Holy Spirit. Their experience of the Holy Spirit on that day was not what made them Christians. After Paul had preached on the day of Pentecost, the people asked what they should do, and Peter told them three things. Repent, be baptized, and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
If we recall, Jesus called the gift the promise in Acts 1, which came at Pentecost. And what we notice here is that contrary to the popular line of thinking that I mentioned, that we can't receive the gift because we weren't there, this is what Peter says in Acts 2, verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So it's not just for you, it's for your grandchildren, your children, and to all those who are afar off. That's us, by the way. We can all receive the promise, this gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to go to another passage in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, where Philip, excuse me, has taken the gospel to Samaria. And it says that when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They believed and they got baptized. Acts chapter 8 is a number of years after Pentecost, by the way. And in verse 14, it says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who it says, prayed for the new believers so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, they were already saved. They'd repented. They were already baptized. So why would the apostles say that they had to go and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit if this wasn't a third step that we need to do? In Acts Chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, it says, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Are we all okay? Are we all staying, managed to stay awake? Yeah, okay. Sorry, I know it's a bit heavy, but um, yeah. So one more passage, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, these believers clearly were from a denomination that wasn't Pentecostal, because their response was, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. By the way, Pentecost was in 30 AD, Acts 19 was in 54 AD, 24 years later. Yeah, so Paul's checking out their salvation. And I think we can trust that one of the greatest apostles, Paul, would know whether there was a third step. Yeah, would know whether there was a third step required or not. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 6, it goes on to say, and when Paul laid hands on them, The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Yeah, remember this was 24 years after the day of Pentecost. So these examples show us that when we hear expressions like receiving the Spirit or the Holy Spirit coming upon a person... This is not talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which brings about our transformation and our sanctification to becoming more like Jesus. Being filled with the Spirit is different to being born again. 
The next thing to notice from the book of Acts is that being filled with the Spirit is something that happens suddenly. It's a supernatural experience. And it happens after we become Christians. We only have to look back to the events at Pentecost to see that being filled with the Spirit was a supernatural experience. They saw supernatural tongues of fire. They heard supernatural rushing wind. And they spoke a supernatural language that they'd never learned. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see that it was by the same supernatural power of the Spirit that the sick were healed, demons were cast out, and the dead were raised. You know, the power of the Spirit the disciples received at Pentecost, evidenced by the speaking of tongues, was the gateway to other mighty gifts of the Spirit that resulted in thousands upon thousands of people being one for Jesus. It's the same supernatural power of the Spirit that we, as Christians, need today if we're going to win souls for Jesus and bring about revival, yeah? So how do we know? How do we know if we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, if we go back to the day of Pentecost, and just as previously mentioned, there was a blowing of mighty wind that came from heaven. They saw tongues of fire resting on their heads, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. But only one of these occurs after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is the speaking in tongues. Yeah, it should also be noted that this was the experience of all of them, all 120 of them. And this strongly suggests that the initial evidence of being baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, or as I spoke about earlier, a pure language, a heavenly language. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, I don't speak in tongues. Does that mean I'm not spirit-filled? I'm not going to answer that question directly, but I am going to say this. I believe that sometimes we can close ourselves off to the power of the Holy Spirit. For whatever reason, we don't want to look stupid or feel out of control. And speaking in tongues can seem a bit weird, let's face it. But I'm going to give you three benefits of speaking in tongues. Firstly... We know that at Pentecost, some 3,000 people were converted to Christianity as a result of the tongues they had heard spoken in their own language. You know, tongues acted as a powerful sign. The disciples didn't know what language they were speaking, and yet they were understood by natives of all nations. Secondly, speaking in tongues edifies us and builds us up spiritually when we pray privately. Of course, there are other ways we can build ourselves up spiritually. Yeah, we can pray, we can read the Bible, we can go to church. So we could ask ourselves, well, does it matter? I don't understand why we have to speak in tongues. I don't understand why we would ask that question, though, because if God has provided us with a way to grow spiritually, he must have had a reason for it. You know, hopefully we don't say, I read my Bible so I don't have to pray. Or I pray so I don't have to go to church. You know, we need all of these things to help us grow spiritually. And so if God says that speaking in tongues is going to help us grow and build ourselves up, then why would we not want to speak in tongues? Okay? We're Pentecostals. Thirdly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14, Paul says this. For if I pray in a tongue, 
My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, when I pray in tongues, I don't understand what I'm saying. Now, you might think, well, what's the point in that? To be fair, that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable question. But in answer to that, when we pray or praise God in a language that we can't understand, we're set free from the limitations of our English vocabulary, right? For me, when I'm walking my dog and I'm in the country park and I'm in creation, I'm inspired and I want to praise God. Now, I can do that in English, or sometimes I just can't find the right words to express how awesome God is. So that's where speaking in tongues comes in. Immediately, I'm set free from the limitations of the words that I can't find in my mind. And my spirit is free to praise God in words that I don't understand, words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So speaking in tongues is valuable because, firstly, it can be a powerful sign for those that aren't yet Christians. Secondly, when we speak in tongues, we build ourselves up spiritually. And thirdly, when we speak in tongues, we're praying in our spirit, free from the limitations of our own vocabulary. We're coming in to close. Few, you all say. <sighs> Me too. I'm going to have a sip of water. One second. Thank you, Lord. I didn't need all of the water. So I'm going to finish with a little analogy of a sailing boat. Okay, it goes like this. A sailing boat doesn't get any movement without the wind. Yeah, the wind is the most important element in sailing. And if no wind is present, you're not going to go anywhere. Okay, the same is true in our Christian lives. We're not going anywhere without the wind the breath of the Holy Spirit in us. You know, that's what powers us. But something else is also true. If there's plenty of wind, but you haven't raised your sails, you're also not going anywhere. You may get a little movement, but not the kind you want. You won't have any idea where you're going. So if you want to go fully sailing in your boat, then you need to raise your sails to catch the wind. Yeah, my desire today is for everyone here to have their sails raised, ready to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, we're all responsible for raising our own sails. Can you imagine, just for one minute, close your eyes, can you imagine if we all raised our sails together and the wind blew and we all experienced that movement of power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we all come together in one accord, in unity and speak one pure language. Can you imagine what the body of Christ could do if we all did that? Remember what it said in Genesis 11, it said... Indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Nothing will be withheld. Churches, we seek to plant churches, make disciples and see revival. We need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do that. 
So I'm inviting every person here to raise your sails. I'm inviting everybody watching online to raise your sails. I want you to open your heart. Yeah? Not be fearful of what might happen. If you want to stand, we're going to go into the last song. And as we do, if you're sitting there and there's something in you that says, yes, I want to be filled. If you don't think you've ever been filled with the Holy Spirit, or if you want to be refilled, the disciples were filled again and again, more than once. Yeah, let's turn, open our hands, turn our palms in an upward motion. That shows that we want to receive. And pray these words in your heart with me. Lord God, I ask you to baptize me today. Immerse me with your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to forgive me for having preconceived thoughts and fears about you. In faith, I receive your promise today. I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit fully in my life. I raise my sails today and I ask wind blow, fire fall and fill me, fill me, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit.